Hey, Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have a message from August 26, which happens to be part 26 of our series on the Gospel of John. Today's message is entitled, Moving Towards Jesus. Today we're going to be looking once again into the story of Nicodemus, kind of a background story that, that really sheds a lot of life, uh, a lot of light on how many people experience God in their journey, waking up to the reality of following Jesus. So without further ado, let's head on over to North Shore Vineyard Church, 525 East Boston Street, right in the heart of downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. Today we're going to pick up the, the story in John chapter 7, verses 40 through 52. And uh, I'm going to kind of cover the first uh, three or four verses first, and then we're going to get to the rest of it. There's a couple of stories going on in here and some things that uh, I think God has for us, but I'm going to kind of break it up a little in covering it. So here we go. In verse 40 of chapter 7, when the people heard these words, some people in the crowd said, this man really is the prophet. He's the Messiah, said some others. But some of them replied, the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the Bible say that the Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the city where David was? There was a division in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but nobody laid hands on him. The, the first thing that we can see in this, this passage, now we've, we've been talking about this, this section for a few weeks. Jesus is in the middle of a, a huge festival in Jerusalem called the Festival of Tabernacles. And he's gone to the temple, the most holy place in Jerusalem on the biggest day of the festival. And he's called out to people, says, if anybody's thirsty, come get a drink from me. It's better than religion. And now there are starting to be people in the crowd who are murmuring about who he might be. And so the first, the first assertion that people make is that this man is really the prophet. Now, when you see that word, the prophet, what that actually means, you can go to Deuteronomy 8.15, and God had given Moses a word all the way back in Deuteronomy, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking to the children of Israel. God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So there was this expectation among the, the people of Israel. They were waiting for a prophet like Moses. And that was really significant because when Moses came on the scene, it was back when they were slaves in Egypt. And now they find themselves there controlled by another pagan empire called Rome. And so even though they're technically uh, a bit freer than they were under Egypt, they're still not free. They're still under another empire and so the, the expectation at this time was, we're waiting for the prophet like Moses. Somebody will come in and do the same thing that Moses did. What did Moses do? He confronted Pharaoh and the empire and did all kinds of signs and wonders and, and led the people out of captivity. So there was this, this prophecy that hadn't been fulfilled. Some people are saying, that's the guy. I bet if anybody's going to be the prophet who confronts Rome and gets us out of here, it's this guy. Well, there was also the, the expectation of the Messiah, now, I've mentioned this on a few occasions before. We, we sing songs about Jesus, the Messiah, or even that word Christ, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Uh, Christ, actually, it means the anointed one, the Messiah. It was a messianic title. And so there was this, this expectation for the Messiah. But the, the Jewish belief at this time was not that God 
would be the Messiah himself. They were just expecting that God would send somebody like David who would be a good king. And so they were just waiting. You know, that, that's the, what they were looking at. So some people are saying Jesus is the prophet that's going to deliver us. Some are saying, no, he's the Messiah. He's going to be the actual king that, that restores Israel to its, its days. But th- there wasn't a lot of middle ground when it came to Jesus. Th- there, there still isn't. <laughs> but some people were getting kind of uh, uh, threatened by him. Now... The only problem with, with, with the Messiah, I remember something in the last election uh, for president that there were some questions about a birth certificate and stuff like that. And, uh, well, there's, there's questions about Jesus in this passage. If he is the Messiah, he's coming from the wrong place. Nobody comes from Galilee. I mean, Galilee, it's like saying Covington. You know, it's... <laughs> no one notable comes from there. It's, it's, it's an okay place to visit. I hear they have good seafood there, but no one comes from Galilee. Galilee, by the way, was on the North Shore of the Sea of Galilee. So North Shore people uh, treated the same everywhere. No. <laughs> but they're saying if he is, he can't be the Messiah because he, where he comes from, because there's all these prophecies that said that, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, David's town. He would be in the line of David. Now, obviously, John, the who, who wrote this gospel is assuming probably that people know those other stories about him because there were three other gospels and they talk about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, being of, uh, of the line of David. And John doesn't really get into that much in, in his uh, aspect, in his gospel. And so that's the, that's the big question that, that kind of frames this whole uh, scene that we're looking at today. And so we'll pick up again in verse 45. So, the servants went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, before we read any further, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they know that Jesus is up in the middle of the temple, and they're wondering, is this guy on our side, or is he on somebody else's side? Can we trust him? Is he going to back our agenda, or is he for somebody else? And they're not willing to really uh, go meet with Jesus themselves, because if they meet with Jesus, then it'll look like either they're... Uh, endorsing his ministry or they might be opposing him, you know, kind of outright. And so they, the, the Pharisees send some, some servants to go check on him. They come back and he says, why did you not get him? Asked the priests. And they reply, no man has ever spoken like this. You don't mean to say that you've been taken in too, answered the Pharisees. None of the rulers of the Pharisees have believed in him, have they? But this rabble that doesn't know the law, a curse on them. Nicodemus, who went to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own numbers, spoke up. Our law doesn't condemn a man, does it, unless you first hear his side of the story and find out what he's doing. Oh, so you're from Galilee too, are you? They answered him. Check it out and see. No prophet ever rises up from Galilee. So the Pharisees, they send these servants to go spy on Jesus. And these guys come back. Instead of giving a report, instead of bringing Jesus back, instead of arresting Jesus, they come back and they're like, nobody has ever spoken like this before. (laughs) And the Pharisees, they act the same way they always act. They're just kind of dismissive. No one, you, I shouldn't have sent a servant to do uh, my job. You know, it's, it's, it's quite obvious why you would get taken in because you're just a common person. The Pharisees had a real kind of spiritual elitism going on. The masses of people don't know God the way we do because we sit around studying God all day. We talk about God. We talk about theology. We dress a certain way. We're in a a little club that discusses these things. Of course, these servants couldn't see uh, the truth. 
And then they go on to, to, uh, to say, to reiterate the, the one line that they've said over and over again. No prophet ever rises up from Galilee. It's as if John is, is, is helping us watch a chess game. Does anybody play chess in here? A couple? Uh, not, this is not a real popular game anymore. Uh, there's this game. It's called chess. <laughs> and you play it on a checkerboard, but checkers and chess, there, there's a saying. We're playing chess here, not checkers. And, and, the, and the, the, the saying refers to when you're playing chess, you're not just thinking this move. You're thinking, I've got to move this to get here, to get here, to get here, to get here. You're, you're thinking three, four, five moves ahead. If you see expert chess players, you, can't, you don't even know what they're thinking. They're thinking way down the game. And, and what we see kind of going on in the Gospel of John right now is there's this chess match. And, and the, the whole point of chess is, is capturing the king of the other player. And so John lets us into this, uh, intends that we, we're watching this in, in, you know, extraordinary verbal chess game. And we should be able to t- tell by now which king is actually going to win in the end. What's interesting here, though, is that we see this great reversal. The ones who should know everything about God are the last ones to see God. The ones who should know everybody. Understand, the chief priests and the Pharisees, this would be like the combination of the Pope, Billy Graham, seminary professors. It's all the people who know anything about God, all gathered in one place in Jerusalem. If they should know God, if anybody's going to know, it should be these guys. But we find out that it's the servants who are figuring out who he is. It's the outsiders. It's the people who are just common folks, the masses that the Pharisees look down their noses at. Now, it's interesting. One other thing before we get to uh, the story of Nicodemus today. They, they actually say this, this one thing that, that there's no, no prophet has ever come from Galilee. And, and that's not right. In fact, there's, there's two prophets that have come from Galilee that we know of. One was a guy named Hosea. And Hosea actually wrote some of, the, from the, some of the prophecies about the resurrection of the Messiah. The other one, interestingly enough, is Jonah. And there's actually one point in Jesus' ministry where Jesus says, the only sign you're going to get, he says, a per- perverse generation seeks a sign. You're always asking me for signs, but you're not really interested in following the signs to where they lead. So you're getting one last sign, and it's the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of a well for three days and then spit up on land. And, and Jesus is saying symbolically in the same way, he is going to be buried for three days and, and, and rise again. So there's two prophets that we know of that came from Galilee, and both of them have some tie to resurrection. But the Pharisees aren't interested in that because they're really not interested in Jesus. Now, the, 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 that's kind of the, the background that frames this whole text. What I find fascinating when I'm studying this text this week is that there's a story that's, that's going on about a guy named Nicodemus. And if you were here probably back in January, I think we, we covered the first part of uh, Nicodemus's story. Nicodemus has already gone to Jesus. He's, he's one of the, the ruling Pharisees. He's, he's, he's one of the elite people in Jerusalem. He, he might have hung out with Paul when Paul was a Pharisee as well. Uh, but Nicodemus had, had gone uh, to Jesus before. And we see, we're going to pick that story up in John chapter 3 in just a moment. Now, before we do that, I want to talk about Texas a little bit, okay? Do we have anybody from Texas here? 
All right, all right. I've been in Louisiana now 20, 20 years, but I still maintain my Texas citizenship from where I grow. Uh, <laughs> Texas pride, it dies very hard. But, uh, yeah. but Texas, uh, my, 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 my dad and stepmom live up in East Texas, and so we go to visit them each Thanksgiving for this uh, family celebration we call Thanks Christmas Giving. It's where we combine Christmas and Thanksgiving. Because I can't really, in my, my line of work, I'm, I'm usually doing something church-related around Christmas, so I can't really travel then. So we go up there, and what happens, we have this little tradition when we cross over the Texas state line. There's the, the big star that you'll see on the side of the road. And uh, when we cross over, we, we do, uh, the stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas, it reminds me of the one I love. Deep in the heart of Texas. Wow, that's awesome. Um, But what happens a lot of times when I'm going to Texas is that by the time we get up to Shreveport, everybody in the car is asleep except for me. So while Texas crossing the state line is a conscious, uh, something conscious to me, it's not conscious to anybody else. Everybody else in the car is going to wake up to the reality of Texas. They don't know. When we cross the line, to them it's going to be just a very, oh, I'm in Texas now. And I, I think that's a helpful illustration to keep in mind when we look at Nicodemus. You know, I've, I've been a part of evangelical churches since I've been a Christian. And evangelical churches are very much about evangelism, telling people about Jesus, getting people to come and uh, you know, say yes to Jesus and, and step over that line. And, and typically in America this has meant uh, there, there's a lot of emphasis on conversion, getting people to con- convert to Christianity. Now, what that typically looks like, I think that one of the classic models that we hold up from the New Testament would be somebody like the Apostle Paul. And I talked about his story last week. Paul was going one direction. He was, he was persecuting the church. He, he was kicking against Jesus. He was rounding up people that, that were against Jesus. And then all of a sudden, he bumps into Jesus. <laughs> and he realizes that though he thought he was helping God all this time, he was actually fighting against God. So Paul's conversion experience was one moment he's going this way, the next moment he's going that way. It was very instantaneous. It's kind of the classical evangelical experience that, that, you know, if you go to a Billy Graham crusade, that's kind of what what evangelicals uh, kind of, that's what they do. Easy for me to say. What they do. And so (laughs) that was... I'm just having trouble this morning with all kinds of things. But when I look at Nicodemus, even though he was a Pharisee that that likely probably hung out with Paul some, I I think that would be a fascinating thing to look at. But Nicodemus, there's no point. we, We only see the story of Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, but there's no point where you can look at Nicodemus and say he's having one of these kind of conversion experiences like Paul. Nicodemus is, it's more like my wife and kids in the car. He wakes up to the reality that he's following Jesus, even though I don't know if he could ever point to one moment where he really just stepped across that line. He did cross that line, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a Paul thing for him. It was a subtle thing. Now, I want to look at Nicodemus's story. If you go to the, the Gospel of, of, of John chapter 3, Starting in verse 3, it says, Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. He goes on in verse 8 to say, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus said. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I love this passage. Speaking of evangelicals, this is probably the, the, one of the most influential chapters in evangelical Christianity. It talks about being born again. It's going to lead up to John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But it's interesting looking at the context here. This is Nicodemus' first encounter with Jesus. And, and how does it happen? Does he, does he approach Jesus during the day? No, he sneaks out. He sneaks out of Pharisee land and under the cover of night. Because if, if he gets seen with Jesus, it would be scandalous. He might get kicked out of the club. And so he approaches him at night. He says, look, Jesus, I, 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 it, it's obvious you're from God. Because nobody could do what you're doing with, without being from God. But, but you've got to help me here. And, and so Jesus' answer to him is, you've got to be born again. Now, I think, again, the typical evangelical idea of this would be you need a spiritual rebirth. And I agree with that. We need God's Spirit within us. If you just try to, to live a life apart from God's Spirit, it ain't going to work very well. How's that working for you? <laughs> but I think, in a, in a sense, that Jesus is saying to Nicodemus... If you want to get into the kingdom, you got to start over. You got to take everything you think you know about God and put it aside. You've got to take your whole life and set it. It's going to be like starting over. It's going to be actually like being born a whole new time in your life. It's going to be like a completely new birth. And so Nicodemus We see this first encounter in John chapter 3, even when we covered it a few months ago. You don't know where Nicodemus is at the end of the conversation. It doesn't say that that, that Nicodemus cries out, oh, yes, you're right. Let me be born again. He's just kind of, wow, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm ready to jump into this yet. We don't know where he's at. But in John chapter 7, we see that who's the one person standing up to the Pharisees and saying, hey, guys. Is it right to judge a person when you haven't even heard his side of the story? It's Nicodemus. And that shows me that even, even if Nicodemus hasn't crossed the line by John chapter 7, God is working in his life and he's heading that direction. Now, I want to show a slide here. and We, we showed this uh, uh, on a, a couple of occasions. This is a, centered set, uh, this is a bounded set. Now, the Pharisees would be what you call a bounded set. The whole emphasis is on the circle. You're, you're in or you're out. To be a Pharisee, you had to talk a certain way, look a certain way, hang out with the right group of people, not hang out with another group of people. Uh, and, and you do all this stuff to get in the boundary. So the, the, the boundary is, is the whole thing that they were hung up on. And, and so they had a very thick boundary, by the way, being Pharisees. Now, you can, you can apply this bounded set 
to, to a lot of things. You could, you could apply it to politics. The, to, to be a Republican, be in the circle, you have to have certain ideas on government or, or social things. Or perhaps there's even, you know, there's probably a lot of churches that, that do a bounded set model. If you want to be a part of our church, you got to dress this way or talk this way or have these beliefs. Uh, but, but the emphasis is on, on, the, on the boundary. Now, when we started this church a couple of years ago, I, I said what we're trying to do here is not a bounded set, but centered set. And under a centered set, what you can see up here is that that red cross in the middle, that's Jesus. And, and now the emphasis here is not on a boundary trying to get people in or out of a belief system or dressing a certain way or talking a certain way. Um, a- actually, what's important under a centered set is where are you in relationship to Jesus? Are you moving towards Jesus? Are you moving away from Jesus? See, the Pharisees... They were very close to Jesus in one sense. They were religious. They followed the Old Testament laws. They studied it. So did Jesus. They were teachers. So was Jesus. They were men. So was Jesus. And so while they were close to Jesus culturally, ethnically, even religious-wise, they were moving away from Jesus, right? But we can see that people that weren't close to Jesus at all, like the Samaritan woman, she's as far away as you can get, or, or the woman we're going to cover next week, the woman caught in adultery, very far away from Jesus, morally, uh, gender-wise. Or Matthew, the tax collector, or uh, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. These people are as far away from Jesus as you can get. They don't follow the law. They're immoral. But we see time and time again, it's these people who start moving towards Jesus. Now, under this mentality, under this kind of idea of, of church, the, the important thing isn't that I said yes to Jesus back in 1976 at a Billy Graham crusade. The important thing here is, okay, well, are you still moving towards Jesus? <laughs> it's not just a membership that you sign up and, oh, yeah, I, I paid my dues back then and uh, I've been in this church. You know, my, my pastor on the South Shore, Phil Johnson, before he started the vineyard down there, uh, he had been a deacon in the Baptist church for many years. And when he tells his testimony, he says he was a deacon, but he didn't know Jesus. I mean, <laughs> he, he had been very involved with church. He'd probably gone through their membership classes. I, I assume you've got to do that to be a deacon. He, he had done all the external things, but his heart wasn't moving towards Jesus. It was just culture. It was just, it was just a, a nice position. Gave him some nice social status. And then all of a sudden, like Paul, he bumps into Jesus and realizes, oh, wow. <laughs> See, you can go through a membership at a church. You can even say yes to Jesus at one point in your life, and yet your heart strays. Maybe you've noticed that in your faith before. Maybe you're here today, and even though you said yes to Jesus many years ago, you're, you're really not moving towards Jesus anymore. You're just kind of moving away from him. People may still call you a Christian, but... But your life doesn't have any vibrant life in it. See, what I see with, with Nicodemus is he's a person that is moving towards Jesus. What I've said in our church, what we want to do here uh, as a community is part of our goal is being a centered set church is we're not trying to go out there and beat everybody over the head in the neighborhood. We're trying to find out what God's doing in people's lives and come along that and, and just guide them towards Jesus. Wherever they're at, whatever kind of sins are their preferences, that we start guiding them towards Jesus. We're not trying to necessarily sell Jesus or close the deal. 
Well, we're trying to see what God is doing. See, what God is, God is moving in Nicodemus's life. He's been moving since chapter 3. Has Nicodemus completely stepped over the edge? I don't know. But when we get to John 19, we can see a different Nicodemus. Verse 38 of John 19, this is the day that Jesus was crucified. It says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. It wasn't just Nicodemus who was kind of afraid of what other people thought about him in relationship with Jesus. There was probably some other people. One was Joseph of Arimathea. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of lemon, l- linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. So we see Nicodemus, when he first meets Jesus, he's coming under the cover of night. He's hiding. He's not letting anybody know what he's doing. He's asking questions in secret. But now, by the end of the Gospel of John, we see that Nicodemus actually is not afraid to be associated with Jesus. Do you realize, by taking the body of Jesus on his crucifixion, he was pretty much signing a death warrant to his career as a Pharisee up to that point. That had been his whole life, everything he'd known. But now he was taking everything he knew about God and he was starting over again. Nicodemus had stepped into the kingdom. When did that happen? I'm not quite sure. But church tradition actually regards Nicodemus as a saint. He went on to to, to really publicly serve Jesus Christ. I find that Oftentimes, when it comes to the spiritual journey, it's so easy for us to get discouraged when things don't go our way, right? When, when you get into a, a situation that is relationally very hard or you face a terminal illness in your family, when the job goes south, and, and, and it, it's so easy to think that God is no longer in my life. I, I'm, 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 I'm feeling negative feelings here. I don't think God wants me to have these kinds of feelings. You, you kind of separate yourself from God. But I think it's, by looking at Nicodemus, we need to realize that this is a, it's a long story. And no matter where you're at today, God is in it. You know, I went to, uh, Dina and I got to go to uh, this Vineyard Pastor Sabbath retreat back in June, and I kind of shared with some of y'all about that when we got back. And it was, it was an incredible experience. Ten days up there, there was eight pastor's couples that went up there, and, man, we got counseling. We had, they had people that would pray with you. you. We went to workshops and all kinds of things. It was life-changing. But you know the thing that, that, that really got me the most was each night a different couple would get to share their story. They'd have an hour to share their story. Their individual stories, how they met, their, their time in ministry together up to the present moment. And hearing their stories night after night, um, we were probably the youngest couple there. You know, a lot of these people have been in ministry 30, 40 years. So we were the young, young bucks. But uh, they, every story we heard, there was some things in their stories that were just awful. People who had had moral issues, people who had had 
had been through church splits, people who had had relational problems with their closest friends and betrayal, sickness. It, it was just hard to hear. And if you would have pushed pause on any of these stories, you'd be going, there's no way that this thing's going to work out. It just seems horrible. And yet, by the end of the story, here, here they were telling their story and they're at a pastor's retreat. God is still with them. And you know what they told us to do when we were listening to these stories? It was really cool. They said, we want you to just listen to these stories and pay attention for some strengths that you see in their story. And at the end, we're going to share what strengths that we see. Now, we didn't know any of these pastors couples. We never met any of these people. So we're hearing their story for the first time. Um, so there was no emotional attachment to these people. We're just getting kind of an objective. This is, this is what we see. But I tell you, it was so amazing because they would open up the floor at the end of the sharing of their stories. They would say, okay, now we're going to take a few minutes and just affirm the strengths. And everybody in the room would just say, you know, I really see God doing this in your story. Or, wow, what courage you had to, to face that. And I could t- there, there were some pastors in there. I, I think they'd never been affirmed for certain things in their life. It was powerful. And, and what I thought was probably going to go on for about five minutes, it went on for 20, 25, sometimes 30 minutes. Just people saying, I see the strength of God in this aspect of your life, in this aspect of your story. I didn't expect for that to really change me much, though. I'm just hearing people's stories. But you know, at the end of that time, it was those stories that really, they showed me something. It, it's so easy to, as a pastor, you know, I'm, I'm still pretty new at this whole pastoring thing. been doing this for about two and a half years now. But I, I think one of the hardest things for me to get through is sometimes, I mean, even about a year ago, I was in some points where I'm, I'm getting a slice of people's lives. And a lot of times the slice of life that you get as a pastor from people is when people are just going through it. You know, a lot of, a lot of people don't, Call up the pastor just to say, hey, I just, ah, life is going great. I just want to let you know that. I'm, I'm just doing great. <laughs> it, it's, 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 my life is falling apart. I, I need some help here. I just lost my job. My wife just left me. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm facing this issue or that. My, I don't know how I'm going to make it. And I, I remember there were certain times, and it just seems like a lot of times I can go for a few weeks without getting... Any crisis, and it's like they all get stored up sometimes. <laughs> there, was, there was a day like last year where we had eight people going to the hospital in, in one week in our little church. <laughs> but, uh, but there was times where I, I, I want to pastor people through these things. I want to be with them and walk with them through this. But there was times where I just found myself getting depressed. Oh, God, this is horrible. It's not that I didn't believe God could move, but it's just you hear one thing after another, and sometimes you just find yourself just carrying the weight of it. But, you know, when I walked out of this, this, this Sabbath retreat, I realized that, you know, I'm just getting a slice of people's lives. It's a slice of that story. And the same thing, I could have got a slice of any of these pastor's couples. I could have got a slice out of their life, and it would have looked like there's no way this thing's going to work out. And yet, God was in it. God was still moving. I think Zacchaeus, not Zacchaeus, who are we talking about here? Uh, <laughs> Nicodemus. Why can't they just have normal names? Nicodemus. Uh, 
I think Nicodemus, God was moving in him and he had ample opportunity. I mean, just the fact that the, the next picture we see of him is at the end of John where he is embalming the body of Jesus. Think of how that would be. You just, you're, you're moving along with what God's doing in your life and then all of a sudden the guy that you put your trust in is the Messiah, the one who's come to, to save you and set things right and now you're holding his dead body, preparing it for burial. Finding God in those things is tough. You know, when we got back from this Pastor Sabbath retreat, one of the things that, that they did uh, at the end of the retreat, they said, you know, we want you to kind of come up with some goals for your life, kind of where you want to be in six months, you know, spiritually, health-wise. And um, so I prayed about it, wrote down a few things that I want to do. I get back from this, this retreat, and first couple of weeks I'm back, man. It was awesome. It's, it's probably like what a lot of people experience going to retreats and stuff. Man, I'm... I'm just having these great times with God every day. I'm journaling. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm in the zone, man. I'm just like me and God practicing the presence. Oh, this is easy. And then we found this building. <laughs> and I told everybody one Sunday, like, pray about this. Uh, we got to move on this pretty quick. We moved on it pretty quick. And then I found that, that for most of July, we were involved in remodeling this place and, and all the stuff that went into it. Now, so I went from being having everything going great to all of a sudden I'm spending like 15 hours a day up in this building. And I don't know anything about construction or anything. I mean, I'm, I'm just bad at it. Some of y'all know that. Yeah. Actually, I probably set us back on the painting stuff too. You know, there's, we could have been done with this building a few days earlier, but people had to correct all my painting mistakes. It was just, it was bad. <laughs> but part of, on the return, part of my... My uh, game plan was I, I got this guy in Texas that I call up. for. He's a spiritual director. So I call him up. And spiritual director, they just ask you some questions and, and help you identify God in your journey. So I'm seeing the date approaching. I'm in the midst of this feeling very overwhelmed and anxious and inadequate. Like I'm in the middle of trying to do all these things. I'm in charge of it, but I don't even know what I'm doing. And I, I'm kind of a little depressed. And I feel like all these disciplines I was doing, like the, just out the window, kind of feeling bad and I see this phone call date coming up and uh, I don't want to call the guy because <laughs> I'm like man I'd hope that after a month I could say oh yes doing this goal this goal this goal everything's going great <laughs> I call him up he's like how's it going I was like yeah not so not so well he's like really what, what's the matter I was like well I just I, I don't like living like this you know I, I feel like I feel like everything that I, I'm, I'm kind of failing. All the stuff that I wanted to be doing, that I was doing great those first couple of weeks, I just feel like I'm, I'm... And he's like, well, okay, how are you finding God in the midst of this? What, what, do you, what do you feel like? I was like, well, number one, I feel like I don't want to live this way very long. He's like, okay, well, how are you discovering God in the midst? What is God saying this to you in the midst of it? What's God showing you? And it was weird. Have you ever had this happen to you? You're talking to someone and you hear from God as you're talking? This was one of those moments. I'm talking, and I hear God as I'm talking. Um, I said, you know, I guess what I'm learning is that when I get put in situations where I feel inadequate and overwhelmed and in over my head, I feel alone. And when I feel alone, I feel kind of depressed. And when I feel depressed, I kind of pull away from relationships with people. And I, you know, funky things can happen when I start feeling depressed and alone and all that stuff. And... But I said, you know, even though that's what I'm feeling, I know that's not really the case. 
Because I said, I can look around the church and I'm not alone. There's all kinds of, I, I don't have to stress out about any of this because there's a lot of people that know what they're doing here. And I don't have to be that guy. I just have to write checks. That's kind of fun. And I, I said, so, <laughs> so he says, well, it sounds like you're hearing from God. <laughs> he said, and I'm just using this example to say that sometimes when we're feeling depression or anxiety or anger, sometimes that's the last place we expect to see God, right? I mean, anybody want to be honest with me? Like, I mean, when we feel those things, a lot of times we want to pull away from God. But what I began to see, he says, look, I don't think you're as bad off as you think because it looks like you're identifying reality from your feelings. You're identifying that God's moving and all this stuff. You're hearing him. You're still submitted to him. Yeah, maybe you're not being as disciplined with all these things, but that's not, those things are there to just facilitate your spiritual encounter with God. They're not the, the, the meat and potatoes anyway. He says, I, I think you're all right. And I'm, I walked away going, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> like Nicodemus, we need to realize that, that no matter what, things look like in our lives. I think this was true of all of Jesus' disciples. I'm sure every one of them went through despair, depression, anxiety, anger, defensiveness. Uh, I mean, they were persecuted. You may be here today feeling like your life is, is falling apart. Where is God in the midst of this? And so I'll ask you that question. Where is God in the midst of this? I want us to close today by just reflecting. I put a a few questions on your outline at the bottom. And the first question, kind of tying into our text, is Am I open to Jesus or am I maintaining my pride that I have everything figured out and don't need God? First question we got to ask is (laughs) Are you even open to Jesus? If you're not open to Jesus, if, you, if, you, if you're content to do this life all by yourself, then okay. We can't go to the next questions beyond that. But if you're just the least bit open. See, when I, I look at Nicodemus here, he wasn't ready to embrace Jesus after his first conversation. But I, saw, I see a crack in, his, in, in the levees, the waters beginning to pour through, he's open enough to Jesus that, that, that he's let a little bit of his beliefs be punctured. Are you tired of trying to do this thing on your own? Are you open to Jesus? Even a little bit. He can work with that. Second question is, where do I stand in relation to Jesus? Am I moving his direction? Now again, I don't want to put this terms in... Uh, don't, don't put this in terms of are, are you showing up to church every week and reading your Bible every day. You can be doing a lot of those things and still not be moving towards Jesus. Okay, That's why I want to say centered set versus bounded set. I'm saying God is moving in your life. Are you cooperating with that? Are you cooperating with what God is doing? If not, maybe today you just want to stick up the sail and let him start carrying you. And the third thing I want to, to ask today, just want to take a... A little time to consider this. How can I look back on my story? No matter how bad your story may seem to you this morning, can you look back in the past weeks, the past months, maybe the past year or so, 
and see God at work? Can you do that? Let's just get quiet and, and, and just close our eyes for a moment. Just think about God here. As we just consider where God is in our journey, I'm going to read a psalm here today. And just ask that God would reveal himself to you. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, even in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, help us to see where you are walking us through the dark valleys, God, the the dark valleys that we face. God, whether it's circumstances, maybe our own emotions, our, our own fears and anxieties, depression, anger. God, whatever these negative things that we don't even want to acknowledge, God. Lord, I just pray by your spirit you would help us encounter you in the midst of those things. That we'd see that that even in the darkness, you're walking us through, you're shepherding your people. That you're feeding us and sustaining us. Lord, let us see the reality that is bigger than our circumstances, bigger than our feelings. That our lives are held in your grip today, Lord. No one can take us from your hands. God is my shepherd, I won't be wanting, I won't be wanting. He makes me rest and feel to cream with quiet streams.
of God forever.